In this week's Trench Chat, we're joined by military historian Taft Gilliam to talk about his exciting project, Great War Huts. Welcome to another Trench Chat. I'm really pleased this week to be joined by a military historian and all-round good egg, Taft Gillingham. Welcome, Taff. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's, uh, I'm, I'm delighted to be invited. Well, you and I have, uh, have a very similar age. We won't say what that age is, but um, <laughs> I, th- I think we've both sort of grown up with military history, really, and, and in particular, the Great War. Where did it really all start for you? Oh, that's a very good question. I mean, uh, you know, being that, as you say, that age growing up uh, making model soldiers, it was action men, it was, uh, you know, war comics, and being surrounded by people who'd fought in both world wars. I mean, uh, even though he died before I was born, my, my dad's dad, he, my grandfather, he, he'd served in the First World War in Palestine and in France. Um, my mum's dad had been a, a pattern moulder in a foundry, so he'd had a um, you know, reserved occupation. My dad's mum had um, left school at 14 to work in a munitions factory. So all of these stories were, were sort of bumbling around. Like you look back now and you think all the stories, that, yeah, all, all the questions I should have asked when I was really young. But, uh, but yeah, you just, you, the, 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 everybody around you just had these stories, these little snippets. These, uh, and it just, I suppose, really just, just built that interest. And at quite a young age, I started collecting uniforms and equipment. And that, whilst it, it sort of came and went, you know, as, a, as an interest, it, it would be, uh, you know, I'd go through a phase of it and then I'd sort of get, get interested in something else. But it never really went away. And then in the late 80s, I bumped into a bunch of fellows who, who went on and eventually became the khaki chums who were collectors. I mean, amongst them, they were experts on all sorts of aspects of British military history. And the, the chums, that was really all about a learning experience. You know, the chums weren't really, you know, well, they weren't. They weren't a reenactment group or a living history group, really. It was a, a fairly selfish organisation, which where we would go to France, Belgium, Holland or whatever, and dressed in all the kit for, for you know, units of, of either of the two world wars so that we could have an understanding how you know how is it worn you know it it, it it says in the manuals that this is how the kit should be worn you look at the photographs and nobody wears it like that well you put it on you, you you get it you go well it's much more comfortable like this it's more practical and and that ended up as a sort of a 30 year long learning experience which really then led on pretty much to everything else it led on to, to doing talks for schools it led on to film and television work uh, and ultimately led on to you know to, to, to Great War Huts the project that uh, you know which, which 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 is what we're involved in now. Yeah and tell us a, a little bit more about that it's, it's a new project you've been working on with actual original Great War Huts that's the name I suppose. Well that's right yes and uh, and it's accidental I mean it is a uh, you know we always say it's, a, it's our accidental First World War Heritage project and it came about really because the uh, I mean we, we started a company back in 2001 to supply uniforms equipment weapons and props for film and television theatre work and as part of that, we've got a trench system on the outskirts of Ipswich, where people like Downton Abbey or uh, uh, Journey's End film or documentaries, dramas, all sorts, come to, to film their first war epics. And every time that we'd worked on a big project, something like Downton Abbey, we would be inundated with people saying, oh, can I bring the school? Can I bring the Women's Institute? Can I bring the kids? Can I just come and have a look? And you couldn't do that because it only had planning permission for film work and not just that because whereas as you know with a proper trench it's full of right angles to limit blast damage but what we'd done for television those angles we'd opened out just to give you better sight lines for cameras so if you came you wouldn't see a first world war trench system you'd, you'd see a film set so we thought what we ought to do is find a site where we could build a proper first world war visitor center where people could come and learn because clearly uh, there, there was an interest in it there was a thirst for it 
And what was most important, what was quite inspiring about it, was that the people who were asking were the people who weren't already obsessively interested like us. And I thought, well, you know, that, that's, that, there's something in this. And we looked for several years. I mean, I think it was five, six years, maybe longer, to try and find a site which would work. And eventually, we found Brook Farm here at Horsted, uh, four and a half acres in the middle of the Suffolk countryside, far enough away from busy main roads, not surrounded by pylons or modern infrastructure, because all right, you know, nobody thinks that they've been transported back in time 100 years. But if there's a pylon on the horizon that's sort of poking you in the eye, it, it just spoils that illusion. And it could have been purpose made for the job. The moment you drive in the gate, there was a meadow, which was obviously going to be the car park. There was a big um, farm building, which, which was big enough to put the, um, the uniform and equipment business in. There was a lovely old Victorian barn, which was perfect sense to, to make that reception area. You could put some toilets on one side, a cafe on the back. And at that stage, there was a, a, a completely out of place row of Leylandii trees, which screened the rest of the site. But beyond it, there was a, a, a sort of flat, gently sloping plateau, which sat in a, in a little river valley. There was a, a field and a, and a drop, this little plateau, then a river. And we thought, well, that's big enough. We could put some replica First World War army huts in there to put displays in, have a big one for you know, exhibitions, or a lecture theatre. And beyond that, there was plenty of room to build trenches, which stretched off into the distance, down into the woods. There's an area of woodland at the end. And, uh, and as I say, there's a, there's a little river that runs through the site with enough room on the opposite side of the river to build a picnic area, which got you away from it. And we thought, well, this is perfect. So we bought it. We, uh, we then went to see St Edmundsbury Planning Department. Uh, and the head of St Edmundsbury Planning said, you won't get planning permission on this in a million years, but why don't you play the planning game? You might get lucky. And... Uh, we're, yeah, we're clearly we're gamblers, but we're not that big a gamblers. So we thought, well, we really need to get some help here. We need to get somebody that uh, that actually knows what they're talking about who, who can help us. And the Duran Group, the crazy bunch that go underneath the uh, the Western Front, they explore all the tunnels that, that, that the tunnels built. I'd, I'd been over a couple of times with them and stayed at uh, at Nick Pryor's place. Nick was the the secretary in those days. I mean, I still be, I can't remember. And I knew that Nick was something to do with planning. So I spoke to Dave Hedges, a mutual friend, and I said, what, what, does, what does Nick do in the planning world? And he said, oh, well, nothing, nothing that would be of any use to you. Um, Nick's the fellow uh, when uh, Sainsbury's or Tesco's want to build over an area about standing natural beauty, they go to Nick's company and Nick explains to the local planners why they can't stop them. So I thought, well, I'll give him a ring and see. So I, I rang Nick up and, uh, and he said, oh, this sounds wonderful. I, yeah, I love the idea. I'll come and have a look. And he spent a whole day with us. He, he walked the entire area. He photographed everything. Um, and at the end of the afternoon, we sat down in front of the barn with a cup of tea and he said, I will get you planning permission on this. It won't be cheap. You'll have to cross every T, you'll have to dot every I. But if you do everything that I tell you to do, in theory, there's no reason at all why your planning permission would be refused. So over the next few months, um, an enormous sum of money, uh, bats and badger surveys, traffic surveys, landscape surveys, um, we, uh, we, we mail shotted the entire village. We're here at Horsted in Suffolk and said, um, you know, we'd like you to, to come and have a look. We'd like you to meet us. Um, because right from the start, we've made it clear that we've been to parish council meetings and said, we don't want to be squatters. We want to be part of village life. We want to help. So, and obviously, since then, we've uh, yeah we've contributed to defibrillator funds, and we you know we we play our part. You know, we're we're, we're definitely part of the uh, part of the village life here now. Um, so we did all of those things, and when it finally came to the planning meeting, um, 
anybody that's ever been to a planning meeting it's the place where people's hopes and dreams all go to die and one after the other you see people's uh, planning applications crashing and burning and ours was the last one of the day um and it was the only one of the day which was passed unanimously um the um in fact, uh, the, the planning department had said that, they, that, that we wouldn't be able to open through the winter. Um, and a member of the planning committee said, well, this is ridiculous. If this is about rural tourism development and it's about uh, education, there's no reason why it can't be open all year if you want it to be. So that was great. One of the other planning conditions was that we could only have one coach a day. And somebody else on the planning committee said, well, that's ridiculous as well. We can limit it to one coach a time. But if you could get four or five a day, well, that's marvellous. So not only did we get the planning permission, we came out of the meeting with a better deal than the one we, we, we were expecting. So, um, so that was quite remarkable. And at that stage, as, as I said earlier, it was that the intention was to build replica army huts because you know you, you, the plans were available. We've got we've got the copies of Major Armstrong's plans for Armstrong huts and, and the others. Um, and then, just by a complete quirk of fate. Um, I have a monthly um, radio interview with Leslie Dolphin, who's a presenter on BBC Radio Suffolk. And something we'd been talking about just sparked off a memory that I'd read that uh, the Ipswich Society, who are a great local organisation who try and look after old buildings and, uh, and, and promote interest in, in Ipswich heritage, um, they had written in their newsletter that the Ipswich Labour Club had had an eight-year battle to get rid of an old wooden hut to build a new function room and, and I had no idea there and then as I left Radio Suffolk I thought, just in my mind I thought I wonder what that old wooden hut is so I, I went right into the centre of Ipswich right in the middle of Ipswich town centre and um, turned into the car park and and there sat a, a double hut it was a, a recreation hut uh, which turned out to have been built by the army at Colchester um, probably mid-war late war um, it, it was actually two barrack huts that had been joined together with a stage at one end uh, you know for entertainment for soldiers I found the club secretary and I said, oh, I, I hear you've had a, a bit of a battle to get rid of this. Oh, yes, eight years it's taken us to get rid of this damn thing. It's an absolute nightmare. And it really is. I said, oh, I said, and, uh, and I don't suppose it would be very cheap to get rid of it. Oh, we've been quoted £8,000 to get rid of the damn thing, you know. And, of course, at that moment, I should have said, well, we'll do it for five. But at that moment, <laughs> instead, I said, well, if we offered to take it for free, um, could we have it? He said, well, why on earth would you do that? And I explained what we were doing. He said, that's marvellous. And uh, he said, we'll have to run it past the committee. And of course, the <laughs> committee were delighted. So in the July and August of 2014, um, we arranged to, to, to take it down. I mean, uh, and at this point, I, I have to mention Kev, Kev Smith, my business partner at Khaki Devil, who was... Um, uh, he was an aircraft engineer originally working for Marshall's Aerospace. Um, and uh, and, and uh, back in the 1970s, he was member number 19 of Duxford Aviation Society and uh, and uh, an incredibly clever engineer. He really is. There's a, you know, a, a project like this, you, you could do a project like this if you didn't have a Kev Smith. But I, I said to Kev, look, you need to come and have a look at this hut. And, uh, and he just walked in the door and he just looking around, yeah, yeah, I can see how they've built this. Yeah, yeah, I know how I'm going to take this down, you know, without any <laughs> plans or designs. So over those couple of months, we took it down, uh, brought it back to, to Brook Farm and in the barn that first winter in the leaky freezing cold barn, uh, Kevin, a young lad called Harry, who worked for us then, restored all the panels. It was, it was made in six foot panels and the roof was in six foot panels as well. And then the following spring, we then put it back up again. And of course, the moment that you come into contact with real buildings, real artifacts, you're like, why did we ever think of using replicas? You know, because the whole thing just oozes history everything about it you know the moment you walk in the door you, you you know that this had been filled with first war soldiers or sailors or airmen or women um and it's not only the first war history which are obviously fascinating but 
all of them have had a, a long history after the First War. I mean, very often the social history is every bit as interesting, sometimes more interesting than the First War history. I mean, the Labour Club itself, uh, that recreation hut, as I say, got a stage at one end and the and the club secretary said, are, are you going to save the stage or will you rebuild it? And uh, I said, well, we haven't decided yet. And he, he was sort of a bit wistful. He said, oh, he said, I, I remember this as, as, as a boy. He said, uh, they were just around the corner from, from the old Ipswich Hippodrome, which was the, I suppose, the sort of major music hall and entertainment centre. And he said, uh, every Sunday, whichever sort of was it was the act of the week all the musical turns or the, or the stars of the day would come and put on a free show at Ipswich Labour Club and he went through this great long list of, uh, of famous Arthur Askey's and uh, you know, George Formby's and goodness knows what else who'd all performed on that very stage and well clearly you know then <laughs> then it needed to be saved and obviously we, we, we now have it here so we suddenly realised that, that that this was a you know accidentally we suddenly find ourselves in the middle of, of a major heritage project and of course, at the outset, you make all sorts of assumptions. Oh, all army huts will be the same. Uh, people refer to them as Armstrong huts because in um, in August 1914, Major Armstrong of the Royal Engineers was given the task of designing something like 32 different buildings, which in any combination could be a battalion camp, a brigade camp, a, an aerodrome, a rifle range, a, a cavalry barracks. But what you what you you suddenly realise quite quickly is that there are all sorts of variations because clearly other companies were popping up saying well we already make temporary wooden buildings as mission churches and we send these all over the world i mean a lot of the wild west a lot of the towns in the wild west were built in in, uh, in temporary form as temporary buildings and shipped out there and assembled uh, a lot of them from, from britain so that uh, that technology that experience already existed so you find all sorts of variations uh, some huts were built by the soldiers themselves one of the early ones that we took down, because having got the first hut, we get some publicity, uh, you know, the local news, look east in, 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 uh, in Suffolk here and uh, local radio, uh, newspapers. They, they ran the story and within seconds, you know, the phone starts ringing, oh, hello, we're Great Hawksley Women's Institute. We've got a hut, it's a bit of a millstone. Will you take it away? Oh, hello, my mum's just died. She's been living in one. Would you like that? You know, oh, yeah, shall I come tomorrow? Oh, no, that's mum's funeral. You know, you'd better come the day after. And it was like this for, for, for months. Um, and so we, we, we went to the one at Tring, which was looking quite sorry for itself. And I think probably now with the experience we've got, we, we, would, probably, <laughs> we would probably walk away and leave it where it was. But it was fascinating. It, it, it had originally been 120 foot long. It was built by the London Territorial Gunners at Gaybridge Park at Hemel Hempstead, who'd had a terrible first winter under canvas in a sea of liquid mud and said, right, stuff this, we're going to build our own camp. And, and it was built by the, by the gunners themselves. It, when they went to France, it became a, an army VD hospital, as many of them did. In, uh, in 1918, the, uh, the, the commanding officer of the, of the hospital uh, shot himself because he'd had a review from the <laughs> local brigade commander who said, this is by far the worst venereal disease hospital I've ever come across. So you've got all these fascinating little bits of history. And after the war, it was bought by a, a local mill owner in Tring who'd taken it back to Tring and had it reassembled as a church and a church hall, a combined church and church hall. Uh, and by the time we, we, we rescued it, uh, one end had nearly all gone. The, the church end had nearly all been shortened uh, as it had rotted away over the years. But, but it, what was fascinating was the amount of people as we were taking it down who would just turn up and say, oh, I got married. You know, when I got married, we had our wedding reception here. Oh, you know, we had my baby's christening party. Or I remember this or that. And you suddenly realise how important a lot of these buildings had been to local communities uh, and still are. I mean, um, because again, as we start to uh, started to research them, we, you start to look for them, people start telling you about them. And something that we at the outset, you think, well, there can't be many of these left. 
there were thousands of them, you know, there were so many of them originally, and so many of them are still doing that job as village halls, as scout huts, as, uh, as, as houses, a lot of people still living in them. And so as part of the project, we then set up a, a sort of a sideline called Love Your Hut, where if you've got a hut and you need a bit of help with it, if you want a bit of advice, if you, it, I mean, some villages have reached that stage where half the village is saying, oh, we need to pull it down and buy a new one. And the other half are saying, oh, we love it, we want to keep it. Well, very often we've been able to, to give people advice as to how to look after it and, and improve it. And without spending too much money, uh, you can give them another lease of life. And, uh, and, and really, if you look after it, it'll last another hundred years. So it, it, it's been fascinating. We've had people come here literally from all over the world. We've been helping other projects, the Valley Kindler Camp project, where they've, they've just built a replica Armstrong hut uh, for a project they're doing. Um, there are teams of archaeologists that are studying camps, the sites of camps. I mean, the, um, I think the Leeds Powell's camp, the, 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 the footings of that are all still there. So um, we had some of the team um, speaking to us about, well, we found this sort of weird combination of concrete blocks. What could this possibly have been? And because we've got the plans for the camps, so it's, oh, well, that's probably a drying room. Or, or something like that. We've had the National Trust here from Belton Park because they'd uh, they, they'd got the chance of of, of um, an original hut from the obviously the you know machine gun course school. So it, it's it's been fascinating. Uh, and it, of course, it, I mean it's not fashionable. I mean it's, if if we were restoring aeroplanes or if we were restoring tanks or steam engines, uh, there'd be a lot more support. I mean it's uh, you know, they're, they're wooden huts, but it's the starting point because once we've built the huts, then the the contents you know the, the exhibits that go in them that's that's really that's the stage we need to get to that's when it will get really interesting but this is important this is uh you know we've discovered that there is this whole fascinating study here that there are plenty of different types you can see how they evolve from armstrong's original heavily over-engineered massive timbers huge trusses so by the end of the war the, you know the, the the tiniest amounts of timber clearly the you know the, the ministry turn up with the clipboard and say right what's the minimum amount of timber that will hold the roof up because we're wasting wood so at every step you can see how these changes occur all of which we're, we're recording and i think that the other thing that, um, mm. that that nobody really appreciates is that when the war broke out the british army could accommodate a, about 150,000 soldiers in this country in brick barracks and when Kitchener asks for 100,000 volunteers and a million men turn up then then there's a massive crisis and there's soldiers as you know who are in pub, just in private houses they're in breweries they're in town halls they're in factories which is a massive problem in its own right because in the morning you've got to gather all these people up you've got to feed them and then take them somewhere to train them uh, and then reverse that process at the end of the day so you're losing several hours in order to do that it was very important to, to, to sort that situation out and get the accommodation sorted. So that building project in those few months at the end of 1914 and the beginning of 1915, where they build enough wooden accommodation, enough wooden hutted accommodation for 800,000 men, to this day remains the largest building project in British history. There's nothing before or since that comes close to it and probably never will now. And no one's told that story, you know, along with the whole of that mobilisation, the, the whole of that massive process of creating the citizen army. It's a crucial part of that. And, uh, and that's something we're telling here. It's fascinating. I mean, these, these huts are, are tangible uh, connections to, to the First World War. And as you described, they sort of took on a life beyond the war. And, and through you, it sounds as if they're getting a new life again. Well, that's that's the, that's the thing because um, as I say, I mean to begin with, you know, we just seen them as boxes that we were going to put exhibits in. You know, that, well, you know, it's it's about the stuff, it's about the things, it's about the uniforms, the weapons, the artifacts. But then you realise, well, the, the huts themselves are artifacts. 
they do tell that story and you can show how that and if you're not interested it doesn't matter you can just look at the artifacts but but you can see that evolution you can see how they go from that very heavily over engineered uh, i mean covered in, in corrugated iron which of course very quickly they realize well that would be much more use making other things so so they go to wood quite quickly and you can see the whole of that process and the fact that they've survived 100 years Clearly, I mean, there are houses that were, that were built in the 1970s that they're already pulling down. <laughs> These wooden huts, you know, that survived 100 years. I mean, the, the, funnily enough, the best one we've got um, was Girton Women's Institute near Cambridge. We had a telephone call from the, from the ladies there who said, um, you know, we, we're no longer using our WI hall. Um, we, we, we're now in a nice new building with a sharing the village hall. And the site is being sold. It's going to become um, sort of housing for, for local, young local people who could never afford to live here otherwise. And it's got to go. We've, we've offered it to the Imperial War Museum, who don't want it. Uh, and actually, Alan Wakefield contacted me as well and said, you know, we've been offered this. And at the time, um, we were quite busy. Kev was, uh, Kevin Harry were already working on another one. Of, um, I think it was the, um, the British Legion Club from Stoke by Nailin, which was quite an interesting hut in its own right. And I said, well, I'll, I'll just go and have a look. So I drove over and I met the, the ladies from the WI and had a good look around it. I thought, well, this is quite interesting because normally they're, you know, there are bits of them that are in quite bad order but there really wasn't much. It looked pretty sound and some of the corrugated tin on the outside, the original corrugated tin, I, I was able to lift parts of that and, and look underneath the windows where they often rot. And I think, well, there's really not a lot of damage here. So I, I said to Kev, I think you need to come and have a look at this. So he, he came and had a look and said, yeah, actually we, we do need to save this. This is very good. So they stopped working on the other hut and we, we started dismantling it. And, um, and the Girton Women's Institute had bought it in 1920 from Cherry Hinton Hospital, which was an army VD hospital. There's uh, you know, a theme forming here. Yeah, recurring team there. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, that had got fascinating history in its own right. The, the, there are newspaper press reports where the, uh, the local people had been demanding, during the war, had been demanding that it had been surrounded by barbed wire so these diseased soldiers couldn't get out and, and, and mix with the local population. And, uh, and at the end of the war, in, in 1919, the Cambridge City Council said, look, it, it's a ready-made housing estate. It's got water laid on, it's got comfortable buildings, it, it's got electricity. And the locals were like, nope, you can take your VD hospital and you can get rid of it. So the whole lot was sold off. And as I say, Girton Women's Institute bought theirs in, um, in 1920. In fact, we, we know pretty much when because the original matchboarding on the inside when we took that off, um, one of the panels had been signed by the husband of the original WI chairman in November 1920 when, when he'd been nailing it all back together again. So we, we, we can pretty much pin down exactly when it went back up. And uh, so we start stripping it. We start getting the, the, the tin off one end. Oh, no, the, the wooden matchboard on the inside. We start stripping the inside of one end. And we're posting these pictures on the Great War Huts Facebook page because actually um, Great War Huts Facebook page has been great. It's the, it's the most active. It's the place where you get a lot of interaction with people. Uh, if you're looking for, you know, old uh, roofing nails or something like that, you put a note on there and somebody somewhere will go and have a rummage in Grandad's shed and produce some. So it's, it's been a great um, resource as well. But it's the place where we show the progress, we show the work we're doing. Um, and so we, we posted these pictures of us stripping the, 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 the wood off the inside of this hut. And I had a message from a, an American lady called Kerry Draper. And Kerry was uh, an architecture student at, at Cambridge University. And her PhD thesis was on temporary British wooden buildings of the two world wars. And why wouldn't they? <laughs> it's just wonderful. Um, and, uh, and she said, oh, my goodness, that's an Armstrong hut, isn't it? And uh, I must admit, because we'd just been stripping it and you're this close to it, we haven't even noticed. But it did. It confirmed exactly 
to to Armstrong's drawings. And actually, Armstrong huts aren't that common, you know, because everyone says, "Oh, they're all Armstrongs," but very clearly, the majority were different types. And as the war progresses, they, you know, they 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 become much more simplified. Um, in Armstrong's original form, it was built as a timber frame and then it was clad. The later ones are built in sections that you can bolt together, but the early Armstrongs weren't. They were they were just a solid frame. And I. I, I, look, I looked at the picture and I, and, and I say, we've got the drawings. I'm like, blimey, that, that's absolutely what it is. You can see it. You've got these massive four, four inch square timbers holding the, holding the walls up. Um, conform completely. I mean, at some point it had the, the double door in the end. The early huts had this sort of four foot wide double door with sort of two foot sections, which opened outwards. Uh, sorry, opened inwards. Um, and, but the basic frame was exactly as per the plan. And we had a bit, a bit of a chat and, uh, and obviously it was still covered with its original corrugated tin. A lot of it got the original uh, Globe brand markings, which, which dated it, that particular logo dated it to, I think it was a pre-1914 brand. Um, and, uh, and I thought, well, this is, this is quite odd because we already knew that the corrugated tin was ordered to be removed late 1914 because it was, um, you know, it, it, as I say, it was more useful for other things and, and timber was plentiful. So I drove home and I, and I got home and I hadn't even got out of the car and I just thought this is really, really odd because we know that the hut came from Cherry Hinton Venereal Disease Hospital, so we know what it was, but we now know that this hut is a very early Armstrong hut. It's covered in corrugated tin, which dates it probably no later than November, December 1914. And it doesn't make any sense because that early on, the need was for accommodation. It wasn't for army VD hospitals, you know, they just needed to get people out from underneath the canvas. And then in an instance, went hang about, uh, because um, as you well know, my great passion in life was the Suffolk Regiment. And in 2017, earlier that year, I'd, uh, Lindsay and I had been on a battlefield tour with Phil Kerm, who many years ago got really passionately obsessed by the 11th Battalion Suffolk Regiment, the Cam Suffolks, the fellows from Camden. I mean, you knew some of the Cam Suffolks. And um, we'd gone, and, and he, he said, well, it's the centenary. I haven't really done much about the 11th Suffolks for years, but I'm, you know, I'm going to organise a tour and we're going to go and we're going to visit all the main Cam Suffolk sites. So yeah, yeah, we, we'd love to do that. So we went on the tour with him. And, um, on the sort of first day, he was just doing the sort of the overview, which was all fairly straightforward, you know, in, in the September of 1914, um, because the Cambridgeshire Regiment were purely territorial uh, and there was far more men than can join the, 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 the Cambridgeshires. Uh, a lot of them had walked to Berry St Edmunds, they'd got to the Suffolk Regiment depot, uh, which was already overflowing. They, they already couldn't cope and they said, look, look, tell you what, get yourselves back to Cambridge go to Cambridge Corn Exchange and we'll send somebody. So they all get themselves back to Cambridge Corn Exchange. The following day, Suffolk Regiment Depot send a, a handful of officers and NCOs, which is the, the birth of the 11th Battalion. And as the battalion expands, they then get billeted in two schools, in, in Melbourne Road School and County, Rural, County School in Cambridge. And as I said earlier, you've got this massive problem that straight away you've got half a battalion in two different places you've got to get them together you've got to feed them you've then got to train them and then reverse the process it's a waste you know it, it's a complete waste of the, of the day so the battalion Phil was saying the battalion commander then wrote to the war office and said we need a camp of our own which is quite unusual I mean normally they were brigade camps uh, they were divisional camps not very common that you found battalions that had their own camp I mean we know that the Leeds pals did but, uh, but that, that's all disappeared that's all long gone and and he mentioned that it was built at Cherry Hinton in Cambridgeshire so I, I then there and then I haven't got out the car at this stage I then Google and discover that sure enough that Cherry Hinton camp was originally built for the 11th Suffolks and when the 11th Suffolks then move up to Ripon to join the 34th division to begin with they, they leave a few hundred men behind who become the, uh, the, the sort of the, the embryonic 14th battalion uh, which are their sort of drafting battalion but when they leave 
at that point then it becomes an army vd hospital so suddenly like whoa you know <laughs> we, we've now got an 11th stuff at hut how fantastic is that now on the site we we wanted to have one hut which was a barrack hut exactly as it would have been so you walk in the door there's the four tables down the room there's the eight benches there's the stove uh, the, the, all the hooks and shelves along the walls and the 32 bed spaces and, and the NCO's room at the end and when I say bed spaces I mean they weren't beds they were they were low wooden trestles with three planks I mean that's what they were then during the day that would all be pushed to the side to give you enough room to get around the table to eat your food clean your kit and because we've got quite a narrow site we'd already decided that one of the later war 16 foot wide huts um which funny enough we, we were in the process of putting up now we were going to use that because it, it you know it gave us four foot more space because as i say we, there's, there's a bank with a field with a field then a drop a hut we have to have 12 and a half feet for emergency vehicles there's another row of huts which then run at 90 degrees and then there's a river so it's finite so i still haven't got out of the car i ring up kevin i said you, you know that we're going to put that 16 foot hut as our barrack hut lengthways down by the by the bank he said yeah yeah there's not enough room to do anything else I said well we're gonna have to put this Girton hut there oh no I can't possibly do that it's not enough room I said let hear me out let me just tell you what it is so I explain what it is it's an 11th Suffolk's hut and he goes quiet and um I said where were you born he went Cherry Hinton <laughs> where it came from I said you had two uncles didn't you who'd, um, who'd served in the Suffolk Regiment Battalion in the first well, what what battalion was that the 11th <laughs> so, so there's literally a one in 30 chance that your uncles could have could have lived in this hut <laughs> while they were training and by the following morning when i get to work kevin harry are already digging out the bank and making it wide enough to fit the hut in um and it's it's fantastic because as they stripped it down and they literally stripped it down into its component parts kevin decided that instead of uh, well, i mean very often when they were moved quite crudely in the 20s they would be chopped into 10 foot sections and then nailed together this note we're going to do this properly so it was stripped literally into every individual piece of timber, reassembled. And because after the war, when you bought huts after the war, you could just buy it in its standard 60 foot by 20 foot form. Or if you wanted a bigger hut, you could buy bits of other huts. And um, so Girton Women's Institute had decided they wanted 10 foot more. So they, 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 they bought a hut and, and 10 foot extra. So because we'd got 70 feet of material, Kev was able to use the, the extra 10 feet to repair the... 60 foot hut so virtually every piece of that is the original hut the, the, the only thing that needed replacing in its entirety they sit on a, a wooden rail that runs around the bottom which was four and a half inches by four and over the years a, a century and a bit of damp had gradually eaten that away but it saved the rest which is what it was intended to do so replaced that and uh, and it's all built on its on its proper concrete footings and it's it's a remarkable piece of engineering and uh, we managed to find very luckily uh, some 1980s army corrugated tin from a firing range which hadn't been nailed at all so it's it, it's it's as close as it could possibly be to the original half right. the windows are original um, two sets of the doors are original and we've got the original floor as well but over a century it's it's worn very very thin in places so it, we're going to have a it, it'll have a wooden um, uh, a sterling board floor then with the original boards nailed over the top so you will walk on the original floor that the 11th Suffolk's were walking on but without wow. walking through it so by the time it's done it will be probably the most original survivor what certainly one of the earliest and the intention is that of those 32 bed spaces and the NCO's room at the end every bed space will be identifiable as belonging to a soldier that served with the 11th 
at some point throughout the war. So there'll be blokes who joined at the outset who were then discharged because they were in reserved occupations or they weren't fit enough. There'll be men who were posted elsewhere. There'll be obviously quite a few who were killed or wounded on the, on the first day on the Somme. Men who were killed or wounded at Rue Chemical Works. So obviously the 11th had a real battering there. Henning Hill, 1918, the German march offensive. Then they get moved for a rest up to the Ypres Salient, where again they, they really have a battering when the, the Germans come crashing through in the April, uh, with a lot of them killed and captured there, and the battalion's pretty much smashed apart at that stage. And of course, a lot of them who then come home, and, and some of whom you know, we're still going back, people, um, you know, who, who were still going back years later, um, after all, people you knew. Um, so the idea is that we will tell the story of that battalion at war by the people who took part with the, the rough proportion of, of all the men who, who served in it, the, the proportion of those who were killed, the proportion who, who came home as far as we can work that out. So that, so that it really gives you a sense. And of course, you know, it is the story of the 11th Suffolk's, but it's a kind of metaphor for most other units. Yeah. Um, and I don't yet know how we'll do that, but I'm also very keen that it won't be full of explanations. You know, we sort of thought this through and thought, well, sometimes you, you go into a really interesting museum or, or, a, or a stately home and it's full of little captions that tell you what, what everything is. Well, we're really hoping it will be able to speak for itself. You'll walk in and you'll get it. You'll understand how it worked and why it worked. So that's, uh, yeah, so that, that's the Barraca. Anyway, we've got lots of interesting ideas for all the others, but, uh, but that's just a, you know, it's a, out of all of them, I think that's the, that's the, that's the one that's so far is our favourite. <laughs> it's fascinating. Um, how many have you got there then now? Um, well, we've got planning permission for 11. Wow. Um, and, and it was quite funny because, again, the planning officer said, said to the staff, said at the start, oh, well, why don't you apply for permission for two? You'll never get permission for 11. And we sort of thought, well, if they're prepared to give us permission for two, well, why wouldn't they give us permission for 11? So we just, well, we can fit 11 in. So that's what we applied for permission for. And as I say, they were going to be replicas. But we're very, very lucky. The, the planning department at Barry Stebbins have been incredibly helpful. When we said to them, look, the, originally they were all going to be the same size pretty much um, when they were going to be replica. Now they're all different shapes and sizes because they're, you know, they're real. And, and they've said, well, you know, we'll support it. You know, if they're, they're real huts, then you need to build them at the size that, that, that they are. Um, and very, very... Uh, lucky as well with the building regulations department because obviously if you just said well I'm just going to build a, a, a an old an old hut then they'd say well you can't do this and you can't do that but because it's a heritage project they've been prepared to look and see that we've built it in exactly the right way we've got plans for them and and they're they're happy with what we're doing and they said well you know we we, we let you do things that that we wouldn't let a normal builder do because clearly you're restoring them as they were and yeah, 100 years on they were still standing so clearly they'd been made properly in the first place so that's all very fortunate um, so so far we've as i say we've got that big double recreation hut where we i mean so far we've had uh, exhibitions we had tim fox gardens uh, art exhibition mesh theater staged a production of the soldier the, the, the story of rupert brooke i mean um, i mean we've had uh, all sorts of talks and lectures and film shows we, we screened the, the the silent battle of the song film but with proper piano accompaniment in there so it's great it's now a proper living space it's uh, it's come back to life as it as it would have been you know with people laughing and cheering and applause and all that sort of stuff yeah um, Brilliant. which is just wonderful we've got a guard room which started life as an original officer's accommodation hut at the royal naval air service aerodrome at Oldborough. that had been a bungalow after the war it had been sold off in 1921 taken up to the local village of friston on handcarts there'd been when there was a lady whose mother remembered it being brought up there and turned into a bungalow and it had had a, a bedroom extended on the back one side 
it had a uh, bathroom put on the back of the 80s, uh, a kitchen in, in the 60s or something like that. So all the back windows had gone and one of the front windows was quite rotten. So we thought, well, what we've got is the, is all, is the basics of a guard room. Because if we, we keep the two windows and we put the door in the middle, we'll put the veranda on it using the original drawings. And so we, we created a guard room. Um, and again, it's a very, very different style. I mean, the, the, um, the Royal Naval Air Service their huts were incredibly thin they used very very thin framing very narrow boarding and the windows very very different again you know the the, the windows were sort of stuck in with putty rather than then fixed in with beading quite extraordinary to see all these differences and how they were made so that now you you, you go onto the brand you go into the door the right hand side or, or two-thirds of it We've recreated that as a guard room, pretty much as it would have been with the, with the beds, with the cell, the guard commander's desk. It's got the original safe in there from the King's Royal Rifle Corps at Winchester, which <laughs> I bought from... I bought that from still there as well. <laughs> yeah, well I, I bought that from Nick Hall at Sabre Sales in the 80s. And oh, uh, wow. I've got just the thing for you. I've got, a, I've got the guard room safe from the King's Royal Rifle Corps at Winchester. You really need to buy this. And I bought it and it's sat in my parents' garage ever since. And uh, what on earth am I going to do with this? And eventually we built a guard room to put it in. So... <laughs> <laughs> um, so so that's and we're very keen we want to try and make it exactly how a guard room would have been it's got the stove in there and all the other things um because very often there's a tendency um in sort of her her with heritage buildings that they kind of get overdone you know it's almost like you get the the art director from a film in so right, i need to just fill this with stuff and it'll have stacks of leather suitcases and all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff but we've, we've got um i think it's a 1921 list of what there would have been in a guard room of a camp of that size a small camp so there would have been no hospitals, so the guard room had a stretcher with a pair of the stretcher straps. Um, we know how many sh um, how many brooms it would have had. We know how many coal scuttles and coal buckets and all that kind of thing. So, so we're gradually accumulating all of that. Um, and then the other half that would have, well, the other third, which would have been the orderly room, that will be the place where we tell the story of the original hut building project of 1914, 1919, and, and that incredible, massive, massive engineering project that uh, that sort of, I mean as I say in its, in its initial form enough accommodation for 800,000 men let alone what then happens in France, Salonika, you name it where they're, where they're transporting huts and rebuilding them. Yeah they were everywhere weren't they? Yeah, everywhere. Absolutely yeah. quite, quite incredible um, and I mean, I mean what, what always fascinates me is that in the March offensive the YMCA were literally just getting volunteers dismantling huts and believe us we know what that takes and moving them back 20 miles and reassembling them so the fellas could uh, carry on having cups of tea and buns. I mean, it's, uh, it's quite a yeah. remarkable undertaking. Yeah, so, so we'll tell that story. And we will also tell the story of the, of the, of the 11 huts that, that, that we've got, uh, their social history, where they've come from. We've got some fantastic artifacts that we've found. What, I think Mendelssohn Scout Hut had got the original Christmas card that had been pinned underneath the boards by the fellas that had assembled it. In the roof in the garden, the matchboarding that which came off the wall in another hut, and just just as Kev was painting it, he spotted a, a pair of cross flags that had been drawn obviously you know, by the signalers by their bunk. We've got a, a couple of original sheets of asbestos because the original a lot of the original huts were covered in asbestos lining, um, and we went to look at a hut at Outwell near Wisbeach and. It was beyond hope. I mean, the, the, one of the roof trusses was hanging down in the middle. The floor had all gone. Uh, and we, we, we said to the lady, I'm really sorry, but much as we would love to save this, it's, it's beyond help. And just as we were walking out, she said, what did you think of my drawings? Drawings? What drawings? So we sort of picked our way back in and kept saying, look at this. And uh, there was a, 
uh, oh, there were only two of the original asbestos sheets left in there, one of which had got soldiers' names and addresses. The other one had got little cartoons of soldiers. And uh, there's a, a drummer with his peak cap and his corporal stripes. And uh, so I thought, well, we really ought to rescue those. So uh, we went back again, suited and booted and sealed them all up. And, and eventually they will be in the guardroom, but obviously sealed behind glass. Because again, it's an important part of the story in 1914, a lot of the early huts were completely lined with sheets of asbestos. The army stopped using them quite quickly because they're, they're brittle, they're very heavy, they're awkward to transport. Um, but what's fascinating is that after the war, when a lot of these were turned into bungalows, it was a selling point, you know, that the builders would, would, would take a 60-foot hut and basically turn it into a 40-foot bungalow. Um, so it, with 10-foot panels down the side, you'd take the end to 10-foot panels and you would turn them in so you end up with windows all the way around and then you chose where you wanted your front and back door. And then it was lined with sheets of asbestos and it was sold as a, you know, your house is now fireproof. It's <laughs> you know? like a full building programme. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, um, and we were quite lucky, actually, because one of the other huts we got quite early on was from Brockton. Um, Brockton in Staffordshire, uh, obviously Cannock Chase, two massive camps. And we were very keen that we wanted at least one hut that had come from a come from one of the proper divisional camps. And we, we were just lucky. We spotted on Facebook um, that there was a, a I think a Cannock Chase uh, site, uh, and someone had said, "Oh, look, this this uh, this hut had been used as a bungalow. It come from Brockton camp, only moved probably a quarter of a mile down into Brockton village, and the neighbours had bought it." Uh, I think it only ever had two families in since the war, but the neighbours had bought it and going to knock it down and build a bungalow or extend a garden or whatever. And what was fascinating was that Stafford Council, who, who completely get how important their first war heritage is, had said, you can't pull it down. You need to find somebody who will take it and restore it. And so two years on, nobody had wanted it, so it still sat there. They'd then gone back to the uh, Stafford planners and said, what, what can we do with it now? And they said, okay, you can take it down, but you're gonna have to store it for two years in case someone wants it and let them have it. So we got to hear about this just before that process had started. Luckily, what they had done, they had had all of the asbestos removed. So all the interior had been, all the asbestos had been taken away. So when we rang up and said, oh, we, you know, is there any chance we could have it? They were like, oh, yes, <laughs> please come and take it. So we went and uh, dismantled the whole thing, took it, took it all away. And, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that, currently that's Kev's workshop where, where he repairs the other huts. But um, soon it will be part of the, uh, the, the it, it, pretty much the 1915 display. So it'll be part of the, um, the of the six huts that tell a sort of roughly chronological story of the war, and the, and the workshop will move elsewhere. But again, very very different design. Instead of having separate roof trusses sitting on top of the wall with the roof on, it has that sort of Victorian idea of a spine board that runs down the centre of the roof with two boards sort of leaning up against it, each one braced all the way down the hut. So again, very, very different design, which we've seen certainly in other places. So, so again, all part of that, all part of that learning, uh, learning process. And then the, the, the hut that we're in the process of putting up at the moment, again, another late war hut, so made in six foot sections instead of 10 foot sections. So as the war progresses, they become in smaller chunks. So you need less people to put them up, you know, suddenly, you know, probably a team of six men could put that up rather than the team of 20 or 30 you needed to put up the original Armstrongs or or probably 20 men that you needed to put up the the, the ones like Brockton made in 10 foot sections and that the, this one uh, is 72 feet long it had been we, we don't know its original origins I, I'm guessing it probably came from Colchester because it's a very similar design to, to the to the double one but but in its single form 
it had gone to Stowmarket in 1947 for the Army Cadets, uh, and there was some fantastic graffiti inside it, and also other stuff that I couldn't possibly repeat. Nicknames of the soldiers. We know who, we know the men who put it up, but but only by their incredibly rude nicknames. And it had got an armory at one end, and all of the walls had been packed with with sawdust to absorb moisture to stop the weapons going rusty. And so what we're going to do that, or that then Stowmarket Girl Guides had then bought it off the army in 1968 or 67 when the TA w- was reformed, uh, and Stowmarket Guides had had it ever since. And so the first 20 odd feet will be our changing exhibition space. The rest of it will then become Kev's workshop where not only is he restoring huts, but all sorts of other stuff. Um, we, we've got a German 77 millimeter field gun wow. that, um, that he's got in process, which had been a you know, war trophy that came mm. from a scrapyard in Wales. He's, uh, he's already restored a, an original 1880s grindstone uh, because again, in, um, in the part where we talk about mobilization, the original mobilisation orders for 2nd Battalion Suffolk Regiment at Camp Dublin, which literally, literally lists every single thing that's going to happen for the four days of mobilisation. Who's doing what, where, when, what they need to do it with, what time. On, on the first day of mobilisation at six o'clock in the morning, the armourer goes to the quartermaster and draws the grindstone for sharpening bayonets and actually as a metaphor for going from peace to war you know the, the, the grindstone for sharpening bayonets is uh, yeah. is right up there and, uh, and we were very lucky that uh, an old armorer friend john oxlade was moving to spain when he sold his um, his his film and television weapons hire business and he said oh well, i've got just the thing for you fellas and uh, we took the van over to over to his workshop and, and, and sat outside there was this wonderful old as I say I think it's 1880s or 1890s grindstone but it's certainly the, the, the thing for the job and uh, as I say Kev's restored that currently he's got a what's he got on the operating table at the moment uh, an original uh, two inch trench howitzer uh, which is all of the framing the base is all original uh, he, he's made a replica of the tube and the, and, and the, the wooden base but again it's, it's lovely it's, uh, you know, it's nice to see these things coming back to life again so, so yeah, the workshop's going to be going to be very busy, I suspect, even once all the huts are up. Fascinating. I mean, an absolute treasure trove. I mean, how can people come and see what you do? Well, I mean, what we do because obviously we, you know, there are a handful of planning conditions that we still need to finish before we get it open every day, um, and obviously that's. I mean, people say to me, when's it going to be open? And I say, well, probably five years ago, really, because when it was going to be replicas, it would have been straightforward. We just built replicas. The heritage project is much more time consuming it's much more expensive so it's slowed everything down obviously this year has been a nightmare the, uh, the hut we're putting up at the moment should have been put up in april with a, with a team of volunteers which which obviously didn't happen we've got a volunteers weekend booked in for october which again we've had to cancel so the boys the, 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 you know the, the, the sort of the regular volunteers who are always here they are currently putting that up so so at least we've made some progress this year uh, but we were hoping to have got two up this year so what we do do, what we do do, we, we are open things like Heritage Open Weekends. We take bookings from clubs, societies, our Western Front Association groups, uh, uh, family history groups, um, all sorts of heritage groups, not just heritage groups. Um, I mean, the, the Ferguson Tractor Club had their AGM here a couple of years ago and, and the chairman was so impressed that he's given us a Ferguson tractor for use on the site. So, so all sorts of people come. We, and, and what's lovely as well, I mean, when we do this sort of annual Heritage Open Weekends, very often the same people come year after year and say, you know, you have heard me say all this before. And they say, yeah, yeah, but every year we come, it's, it's got bigger, it's got better, there's more. Because when it first started, I think we, we thought that we had to get everything finished before we could open properly. And Richard Van Emden said to me, no, 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 you've got that completely wrong. He said, I was a student at Durham in, in the 80s. 
He said, and I used to go to Beamish, the big open air museum. And back in the 80s, there wasn't too much there, but what was there was great. He said, but every time I go back, there's a bit more of it and it gets a bit better. But more important than any of that, I've been on that journey with them. I've seen it get bigger and better. I've seen it improve. I've seen it how, how, it, how it's come along. And, um, and I feel part of that. And so that's, that's our intention. If we can probably get one more hut up, start getting interesting artifacts in it. And I mean, Kevin and I have been collecting this stuff for, for many, many years. We've got some brilliant things to put on display. So I think that, that will be the point when we, then we open the door properly. But at the moment, if, if a group of people want to come, or, or sometimes people ring up and say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm here from Australia. Someone tells me that I really should come and have a look. We'll always find the time and put the kettle on and people can come and have a wander around. Brilliant. Um, and, uh, and obviously there, there are various events that we put on throughout the year, well, throughout most years. So, uh, so yeah, I, I mean, I think that's the, um, I, I think that's, uh, for, as we're still in this process, we're, you know, we're, we're always very happy to, to, to have groups come and sometimes we'll have two or three Western Front Association groups are all arranged to come on the same day, uh, which is great. So we get more people, you know, and, um, you, you, and so you, you, I only need to tell them once instead of three times. But and I think you're online with uh, with Twitter and Facebook. Yes, and, yes. Uh, and, and also you've been doing some fantastic myth busting uh, <laughs> lectures on on YouTube recently through it as well, which has been very interesting. Yes, I mean, obviously, what do you do in, in you know in, in lockdown when you can't do what you would normally do? Well, as as you've been doing, you know, it, it's all about a bit of outreach, and and this has been great for us. It's given us the opportunity to find new audiences, to find people who knew nothing about us, uh, and to tell them stuff and. And it's like, well, what, you know, yes, I can talk about battles. I can talk about all sorts of stuff, but what's going to make people sort of stop in the tracks and go, oh, that's really interesting. These people have got something worth saying. So, so I've really been sort of thinking about what, you know, what, what can we, what can we say to people that's going to make them stop and think and, oh, this is interesting. I want to hear more about what these people have got to say. So that's really what's driven the, the series of talks. Let's tell people something that they might not know or not be familiar with, or or they might know a little bit about and expand that knowledge. So that that's really what that, what, what what we've been trying to do, and we've launched those um, every month on the I think the second Wednesday in, in, in theory, sort of roughly in the evening, at the same time that we've been having our sort of Suffolk Western Front Association branches. So there've been like a virtual meeting where people who would normally have come to Stone Market British Legion Club sat down for a talk have had that sort of communal experience. They still come there, <laughs> they sit down in their own living room and they watch a talk. Um, and of course it's open to everybody else as well. And, um, and we, we've had fantastic response from it. And, um, and obviously, you know, what we're really after, we're after subscribers really. So anybody who, um, who would like to hear them, obviously you can just log on to, to the Great War Huts um, YouTube site but uh, but subscribe as well because it's as you know it's, uh, it's all about subscribers it's a it, it's a great benefit to us the more subscribers we get and also you sort of think well this is good people are you know people want to hear more and, uh, and it's quite inspiring <laughs> absolutely well, well Taff, thank you so much for uh, for telling us all about great war huts and, and what you're doing i'll put some links on the uh, podcast website to your various social media um, channels and also your youtube channel Taff, that's brilliant. Thanks so much. And we'll get you back again to talk about uh, film and TV work, which uh, I know is something very dear to you and, and uh, something that interests a lot of people. So thanks for that, Taff. That's a pleasure. Thank you very much. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Frontline with me, military historian Paul Reed. Do take time to subscribe to us via your favourite podcast service. Tell us what you think using the hashtag OldFrontline 
You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor, and the podcast has its own Twitter feed now at Old Frontline Pod, and have a look at the podcast websites oldfrontline.co.uk. Until we meet again along the Old Frontline.